1 John chapter 2. Again, just to remind you, the uh, chapter and verse breaks were added much, much later. Uh, I mean, when you know, Paul and John and such wrote, they did not write in verse format. They didn't write in the fancy double columns, you know, they didn't, you know, in fact, actually, in many cases, they actually didn't write with spacing and all kinds of other punctuation things. Uh, but so when they were read, it was just read start to finish. Most of these letters particularly were written in such a way that uh, the uh, elder of the church would stand up front and just read the whole thing kind of as go. And uh, for ease of use and categorization and talking about it, uh, some very wise men went through the entirety of the scriptures and added in chapter breaks and verse breaks to make it easier to talk about it. Uh, and they did a, a noble and brilliant job. But occasionally they kind of missed a little bit, um, either uh, because they, they maybe understood the passage a little bit differently. They didn't understand maybe how the Hebrew worked or whatever. They had a, uh, their translation of the scriptures was a little bit different than maybe what we would uh, have seen corrected today. This is one of those passages. They put the chapter break in the wrong spot. First uh, John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, we've read your word, and what a great gift that is. Now we ask that your spirit would apply the word, that we might be convicted and convinced of the words of life, Convicted and convinced of our sin, our need for repentance, convicted and convinced of the beauty 
of the Lord Jesus. Give us your help, we pray, for Christ's sake. As your spirit works in us. Amen. Amen. Tell you a story. It's an interesting story. Actually, it's probably not. It's a story about a fish. It's a story about a kind of fish, actually. It's a story about a kind of fish called the paku. Interesting kind of fish. It's actually a very common fish. It's like a carp or a trout or a bass or something. It's a river fish. It's in a river that does not live, you know, the river's not on this side of uh, this hemisphere. It's in the eastern half of the globe that God has made. The paku is a normal fish that loves to eat uh, the roots of water lilies. They can grow quite hefty in size. They have uh, really interesting little teeth. They have uh, two sets of, uh, they look kind of like our front teeth, just like this, that are perfect for going and swimming under lily pads and nipping off uh, the little bits of root that dangle down into the water. And uh, humans have lived in the same rivers with the paku for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. It's never really been an issue. Until recently, actually. It's really interesting because there's been a major change in how the paku behaves in uh, one of these rivers in Southeast Asia. The government, in an attempt to help increase the yield of fish from the river, in an attempt to increase the number of fish that people will be able to eat, introduced a new species. That new species happens to also like to eat the roots of lily pads. Unfortunately, they happen to be far more excellent at it than the paku are. And it's interesting because uh, the folks that live in this river and swim in this river and bathe in this river, whose children play in this river, are now having to deal with something radical. The paku has started biting people. It's actually really interesting. We, we don't really see many cases like this where a fish that was a vegetarian fish has suddenly turned into a carnivorous fish. And you know, part of why is the lily pads are actually all gone. This new invasive species has eaten all of the lily pads and the paku needs something to eat. So it's now started trying to eat birds and trying to eat small snakes and it eats other fish. And if you dangle your finger in the water, it will try to eat your finger with those little teeth that bite like that. It's interesting because these folks, these humans, these image bearers that live in this river, which have for years and years and years and years known the paku to have a docile, pleasant, easy nature, are watching its nature change. Places where your children could go in and bathe and play and be just fine, that were safe for years and years and years now, no longer are. Because the Paku's behavior set has changed. It now is actively looking for meat because there's no plants to eat. Its nature is almost a different sort of behavior. It seems in so many ways to be a very different kind of fish. It's fun because we're watching as God's clever creation right in front. He's made creatures so unbelievably complicated that they can adapt to this sort of change. I mean, we see this with bears, right? 
built for scary killing and eating, and they love berries. It's part of God's incredible, clever design in the world is the natures of these creatures are so spectacularly complicated. John has been talking thus far in his book about the nature of people. And much like the Paku, it's two separate sets of natures. Two different kinds of people. And John, again, being the artist, I imagine he's the kind of guy who would love to have drawn. Maybe he's a poet. He would love to have written poetry. I I, I don't know. But he's certainly artistic. He loves to draw in these vivid images. And he's drawn in the idea of light and dark. Those that live in the light and those that live in the dark. That's actually how his gospel is framed from the very beginning. That Jesus is the Lord of light and the darkness of the world did not understand or comprehend him. He's painted a contrast of these two natures between life and death. Two categories. Today we might think of it as a light switch. We're off and on. Two totally different categories. Now, as we look at this passage particularly, we get to see some of the outworking of those two different categories. He's been giving us tests to be able to determine which category you're in. How can I tell if I'm in the category of darkness? How can I tell if I'm in the category of light? He's going to give us another one here starting in verse 11 next week. He's filling his book with tests to be able to see which one is which. But now here in the middle there is a transition. That was the ice. Now here in the middle, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10, we're in the middle of a little bit of a transition as he transitions from one test to another. But John, being a wise pastor, kind of rambles for a moment. He takes a teachable moment. And he deals a little bit with the so what question. I mean, why does it matter that there are two categories? Why does it matter that I can be a creature of light as opposed to a creature of darkness? Why does it matter that I can be a child of God instead of a child of the devil? Who really cares? This sermon is actually going to have two points, but the second point is going to have about seven underneath it. The first point that he's, he's going to kind of framework, and this is a back point, really, it's a foundational point, is that our new nature has new consequences. See, things behave according to their nature. It, it's part of what makes the Paku so interesting. Here's a creature that we thought its nature all along was vegetarian, plant eater, loved the roots of plants, and now suddenly it's acquiring the taste for meat. It's crazy. Things behave according to their nature, and in fact, people behave according to their nature. And so examining what the nature of a person is is extremely important. And here in these brief verses, John walks us through just really quickly a handful of benefits that come from being a creature of the light. He walks us through the benefits of being a creature with this nature new nature 
We're going to look rapidly through them. I don't have time. I mean, each one of these is a lifetime of learning. But seven consequences of the new nature that God gives. And now, little children, again, Grandpa John, great-grandpa John, talking to the church. He calls them little children. It's not because everybody's little. It's because he's really old. Abide in him. Abide is one of those words that we don't really use much unless you're in one kind of famous movie subgenre set and fan group. Uh, it's a word that remains, remains to live in or to remain in, to dwell in. So now children, church members, dwell in God. Why? What's the first consequence we're going to look at? And so that when God appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He takes us actually here fast forward to the end of time. He takes us to the second coming of the Lord Jesus and introduces the first consequence of this new nature from this section as we're looking at them to say, look, you don't have to be a creature that fears shame on the last day. You may be a creature that stands in confidence and boldness at the coming of Christ. I find this to be intriguing because there are so few attributes that fly directly in the face of how our current culture lives. To think about being creatures that live in such a way that there are no secrets that will come out that will shame us. At that last day when all that is secret is made known, when your search history is made known, when your browser history is made known, when those inner doubts and fears are made known, when those inner petty hatreds or self-loathings are made known, or those crimes committed in private deeds done in darkness are made known. To think about being a creature that need not live in shame. Let me just pause for a moment. This is one of those concepts that we we kind of interact with as Christians, but so often we go, oh yeah, I know that. And then we kind of push it aside. And we forget the the deeper-seated reality that God is doing here. What he is talking about. You know, his children are remade in such a way that what he's talking about here is that the second coming at the end of time, when we are fully exposed, we don't have to worry of shame and rejection. And you think about so much of human history, so much of human interaction, so much of our world, so much of who we are is shaped by this driving shame. It's my favorite kind of point to think about with Adam and Eve. They fall, they realize they're naked, and they immediately start trying to fashion clothes to clothe them from each other. How bad does it have to be? I mean, both of you have bodies that weren't fallen until about four minutes ago. Young, the fullness of fitness and health. 
The only people around is your spouse. And you're like, no, nah, I got to cover up. I, I can't stand to be known. I'm, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I, I can't stand the idea of being vulnerable to this extent. You see, that's the real issue that they're doing. Their, their clothing is just a front for the emotional process that's happening inside. I can't be known. And here instead, God says, look, children of God, your new nature, your new structure, your new essence, your new being is one where you don't have to be afraid of the shame. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in The Great Divorce. And I recognize C.S. Lewis is a bit of a sometimes excellent, sometimes maybe not quite so. His book, The Great Divorce, is absolutely brilliant, but there's an interchange in there uh, with a man who's trying to evangelize. It's fictional, obviously. It's in a dream. It's happened after death. A man who's trying to evangelize his boss. But the Christian who is evangelizing was a murderer in life. And the interchange is spectacular. It's actually kind of jaw-dropping when you read it the first time because the boss, the friend, the, the man who needs to be evangelized is like, Ralph, how, how on earth could I believe anything that you're saying? You were a murderer when you were alive. And the guy's like, I know. Wait, what? Yeah, absolutely. I killed that guy. It was wrong. It was evil. I shouldn't have done it. Now, would you please listen to what I have to say? It's interesting. There's, there's no denying There's no equivocating, but he's not defined by debilitating shame. It's not a brazen ownership of evil either the way our culture is modeling today. Hey, look at me and my evil and calling attention. Instead, it's it's a profound understanding that Lewis models there in the man that, look, my sin and my shame were taken to the cross and they were put on Christ. I am not defined by that anymore. That's pretty good right there. We can stop the sermon right there and be like, man, that right there is, that alone is worth evangelizing for. That I don't have to live being afraid of being found out because my sins have been taken to the cross. John doesn't stop, though. 29, if you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So the same idea. Godly uh, people will act according to their nature. They will be godly. Chapter 3 into verse 1, though. See what kind of love. Look! That's actually how it's written. <laughs> Look! Pay attention! See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So not only will we be creatures of pardon, not only will we be creatures that have shame removed from them in the future, but even now in the present, we may be creatures whose nature are children of God.
And again, this is so significant because of how he's already framed it because he's told us more about what that fatherly relationship looks like with his children. You see, some of us in the room have grown up with terrible fathers. I mean, wretched fathers. Some of us only use that idea of father as a source of of discouragement or something that we despise or a, a fountain of hatred in our soul. But instead he defines, look, your new nature marks you as a child of God and that makes you by definition the object of the father's love forever. Look at what kind of love God has given Look at what kind of love God has poured out upon his people that their nature, their essence are beloved children. It's one of those elements of human nature that science is finally beginning to understand, to begin to comprehend and beginning to account for correctly. They're beginning to see how this works in orphanages and raising children without parents. It's really intriguing. You know what happens to a child that's raised in an orphanage without parents that does not receive physical contact and love? They die. They just stop breathing and die. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. It's scientifically proven. We're, We're beginning to see and beginning to finally understand the consequences of not feeling the love of other people, of not feeling the love of relationships. We get to see it in our our frailest little, most precious form, these little babies. That if they don't receive the physical contact of someone just to pick them up and share affection and life with them, they just give up living and die. God God knows our frame. He knows our nature. And it's now a defining relationship of love with his people that there's nothing they can do anymore to step outside of that love. They can't get away from it. Can't get away from his fatherly care, his fatherly affection. No matter how bad it gets, he is our father and we are his children Third, it changes our nature in such a way that we're different from the world. And we're going to talk more about this next week, particularly. But it marks us as new and different and other. Our relationship is defined with God and with God alone. And the problem is that the world hates God and they're going to hate us. And so that relationship is severed and broken. Look in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. I love this one. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Our, our new nature guarantees us transformation in the future. Specifically here, John's talking about when we die, when we pass into the world to come, when we step through the veil of tears, we are transformed. And there's two steps or stages for most saints. Upon death, something immediately happens. Their body dies. 
I mean, it's a shock, but their body dies, it stays, it stops, it remains right where it is, but their soul, the soul of the dear believer, immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. And the way the confession states it is made perfectly blessed for the full enjoying of God. So even now, those saints who have died before us, those that we know will be in heaven, even now they are in God's presence. So think of Adam and Abraham, Moses and Samson, all there, fellowshipping together. But even them, they long for the second coming, much like we do. Because they long because they're incomplete. And that's weird to think about. Being in heaven, being in God's presence, but being incomplete. And the reason being is because they have yet to receive the new body that matches that new nature. What is that body going to be like? I love how John kind of doesn't really give us much. (laughs) Folks, we don't really know what that's going to be like. It hasn't appeared yet. We haven't seen the post-resurrection body. We don't fully know what it is like. In fact, actually, all the resurrections we see in Scripture, in some ways the worst kind of resurrection except for Jesus, because he resurrects them to their old bodies so they die again. But instead, we will be raised and we will be given a new body when he appears. We'll be like him and our bodies will be a reflection of the nature that we have. That's really fun to think about. I mean, think about that first. Just pause for a minute. Again, just think through that. To have a body whose physical design reflects the fact that we have no shame. I mean, honestly, think about how many of you every morning when you look in the mirror. Maybe you don't even look in the mirror because the shame is too much. <laughs> think about the fact that your, your, your actual physical construction will relate that. Your actual physical construction will reflect the fact that you are God's child and you are a creature of love. Your actual physical construction will reflect the holiness and perfection of God. We may be confident in that coming transformation Again, think about just, again, the contrast the world has to offer. Our world offers now everything now. I mean, America has, we've put a really, it's an impressive ability to, to manufacture pleasures now. I mean, the things that you can get through the drive through is really astonishing. <laughs> I mean, we haven't even gone quite so far. I mean, you crazy things, right? You can get your coffee in a drive-thru, okay. You can get your medication at a drive-thru. I don't know if y'all have been to any of the states yet that have drive-thru liquor stores. You ever seen those yet? Those are my favorites. We're like, how is this not a... Oh, whatever. I we've, we've captured a culture which is all about pleasure now. And it's intriguing that God here is saying, look, one of the benefits of coming to me, of being my child, of being my beloved creature, is that you will have confidence. You don't have to pursue pleasure now. Because now is not all that there is. 
You don't have to have in your mind, in the background, that you only live once. Therefore, I will wring every bit of pleasure out of the days I've been given. Because you know what? I won't only live once. I will live forever. And not only will I live forever, I will live forever in a body that is designed for holiness. I don't have to pursue my pleasures now. I will have pleasures for time on end. And I may be confident in that. May rest in that. Verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes, if, if you are this child of God, if you're hoping in God in such a way, in him purifies himself as he is pure. This new nature, interestingly, is a nature of purity. It's the defining element of who we are, one of them. That we are pure creatures. You know, we're right in the middle of a very major cultural movement, a cultural moment. As we're watching kind of the Me Too movement come into its own, where uh, a culture that has, saying this delicately, uh, degraded certain portions of it, and certainly degraded human sexuality and not treated people with proper respect and honor, uh, where some of that's coming back to haunt people. And it's interesting that one of the elements that's not really being talked about so much with the whole Me Too movement is the fact that that movement is, at its core, it is a movement of impurity. Two two aspects to that movement. One, it is impure actions from the men, largely, who have caused it. And the impure feelings that remain in the women. The victims and how used they feel. That tangible filth that they think has managed to cling to them, that's managed to somehow infiltrate their soul, the voice of the victim here. For God to say, no, look, if you are my child, it doesn't matter what they have done. My child, you are clean. It doesn't matter what you have experienced. My child, you are pure. It doesn't matter how you have been victimized or how you have been the victimizer. When you come to me, there is newness of life. This is one of the elements that we're not talking about uh, nearly enough In response, there's cleanliness available in God. And I'm not talking about hygiene. I'm talking about how we even see ourselves in the mirror. And I recognize there's probably a lot of us in the room that are like, why are you spending so much time on this point? Because there's some of us in the room that this is the most important point. And just because we don't feel it doesn't mean they don't. Four and five. 
This is where he begins to transition with the the consequences of that purity. Again, that new nature is everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Keeping going, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him. or One of the consequences of this new nature is that sin stops. Now, it doesn't stop instantaneously. It's not like, hmm, regeneration, I'll never sin again. Uh, I mean, honestly, I would really love that. I would love that for my own person. Man, my family would be more fun. I'd be more fun to be around. Probably wouldn't have a job. It would be great life. But that's not what he means. What he means is that it be no longer that defining element in our lives. It's no longer the motor that drives the vehicle. It's no longer the engine that propels the car. Sin is no longer king. And he's going to make the point here, and certainly we should make it and think about it, that if you look at your life and you see the same sin, and it never, ever, ever changes, and there's never any change in victory, there's never any change in what you... Well, you really need to actually consider your situation. Because God's people are marked in their very nature as those that stop, they, they desist, they quit. Now, it's over time, but they do have victory over sin. For some, that victory is much slower than others. For some, it's much more rapid. And certainly, we all win it in completion when we die. But we are defined by victory over sin. And then interestingly... I mean, I, I love this. I mean, this is a massive list. Any one of these, like I said, I could preach. I could preach for a, six months on just these handful of points. But to think about, I mean, if you process them, that we may be confident when in the second coming, that we're marked as his children, that we're different from the world, that we have confidence of the upcoming transformation, that we are creatures of purity, and we will stop sinning. There would be a point that you would go. I mean, really? I mean, that's a lot. Are you sure? I mean, does God actually know who I am? I mean, I I get that those promises may be made for Paul. I mean, Paul's wonderful. Made for Jesus. I mean, made for John. John was Jesus' best friend. I, I, I get that. But me? Look at where he turns to in 8 through 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, no, what's going on here? Oh, we have an enemy. It's not just you that's in the equation here. It is the devil. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Oh, by the way, part of the reason Jesus did his work was so that victory would be secure. And as application, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God and God is victorious. You see, that's actually part of our new nature. I mean, our culture's really cannibalized the phrase and really done terrible things with it, but we're winners. We're victorious. As a part of who we are. 
Now, again, there's some of us that are maybe a bit more confident in the room, maybe a bit more uh, conceited in the room, possibly. We're like, well, of course, I got that. I figured that part out a long time ago. I am a winner. But again, I recognize there's probably a substantial portion of us in the room that are much more tender of spirit and honestly go, I I understand these promises. Maybe I've been a saint for a long time, but we maybe actually go, well, I know I'm a child of God, but sometimes I actually doubt that God loves me. Or maybe to say, I know that God cleanses me from sin and from its guilt and from its power and that I am a pure creature, but honestly, in most days, I really doubt that. And I love that how he ends the section is with this, oh yeah, by the way, your new nature is one of victory. And all of these other promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus because Jesus has already conquered. And oh yeah, by the way, you will too. You will conquer. There's no way around it if you're a child of God. It's not possible to lose if you are God's child. Now, Paul's going to argue this in a different way because he's Paul and not John, but he's going to say, look, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Height, depth, angels, demons, nothing. There's nothing. Oh, yeah, by the way, including you. His promises are accomplished in Christ Jesus. So what do we do with this? Well, one, first and foremost, and I would preach particularly here to those in the room that are more tender. Those in the room that do wrestle with these issues, that struggle with feeling or receiving the love of God, who struggle with feeling or receiving the purity that God has given. I would just encourage you, please exterminate the lies of the devil. Because every time you hear that little voice in your head, saying, surely I I can't be loved. Surely, surely I can't be clean. I mean, if they only knew. Surely when I get found out, I'm going to be shown a fraud. Surely when it... Fred, if if you're a child of God, those are lies. Those are lies from the pit of hell. They, They snuck in by the devil, whispered in the back of your mind to try to bring back condemnation that was paid for on the cross. When that temptation shows up again, maybe that one we've lost to so many times before, to listen to the lie of the devil one more time. And I would lovingly say, please do not. We have the promises of God. We have a new nature. We have victory in King Jesus. Please now go act according to your nature. Go live according to who you are. Go live according to how God has made you. Secondly, I would encourage you to 
meditate on these things and see if you can, through prayer and faith, have them shape your personality. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. No, actually, it really does. It does a lot. Because you think about personalities are one, part how God made us, and two, part how our sin has shaped us, and three, part how our environments have contributed to the shaping of those other two. And to think about how your life would be different, your person would be different, how you interacted with people would be different if it was resonant in your soul that I am a clean creature made so because Christ has paid for me. That I am a loved creature because Christ has accomplished that on the cross. That I will be victorious over sin. You see how that will shape your personality? Honestly, might bring a little bit more optimism for some of you. Because God is victorious. Might bring a little bit more contentment for some of you. Because you will understand that God has shaped your world for a reason. Honestly, it might bring a lot quieter of a mindset to many of us. Because the voices in our head will be shut down. Because we don't have to listen to them anymore. Because we're new creatures, we're clean creatures. Parents, please pray this for your children. Pray with them. When you pray with them every night, pray. Ask God's blessing upon them that God would make them wise and that God would shape their personalities by the promises that he has given. Pray that for yourselves, that we would be creatures that live according to our nature. And then lastly mentioned this in Sunday school as I closing point and setting myself up for now. Friends, this is a foundation for evangelism. And what an easy one it is. Are you lonely? I know why. And I have the answer. I know who he is. It was accomplished on the cross. Do you feel unclean? I know the answer. I know where purity can be found because Jesus accomplished it on the cross. Are you anxious? Are you afraid of being vulnerable because you're afraid of being hurt one more time? I know the one who will never hurt you. Who knows your inmost person and will make you new. Friends, these are easy points of evangelism in a world that's failing on all of them. On all of them. I mean, honestly, our college campuses these days is just an exercise in the opposite of these. Coming from youth ministry, it was an exercise in the opposite of these. This is the message the church desperately needs to have in a culture that is the culture of death and depravity. We have been given a new nature. May we live in light of it because of what Jesus has done and offer hope to the nations. Let's pray. Lord God, you have made us new and that is wonderful. We thank you for Jesus who lived for us, died for us, and was raised for us. Oh God, may we act according to our new nature. For your name's sake, amen.